Go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. As we continue to look at this uh, wonderful epistle and this very important topic of the home, and particularly as we come into chapter 3, the wives in the home, the relationship of wives and husbands and how, particularly in this section, wives are to adorn the gospel of Christ with their lives. And we've sung about the heart of what Peter is going to direct us to this morning and what the Spirit of God is going to call our attention to this morning. Namely, that the preciousness of Christ and the reality of our faith in Christ is demonstrated in our lives. What is affirmed, or what affirms everything that we sang about this morning, what gives it credibility, what gives it glory among the watching world is lives that show a transformation that show the reality of these truths as being living and abiding truths that animate everything that we do as the people of God. In other words, it is the testimony of our lives that affirms the testimony of our lips. That's what gives the gospel power in in terms of its manifestation in the people of God. And one way that that is demonstrated with with great force and with great glory is within the home and particularly, again, here in the attitude of wives toward their husbands. So read with me, if you will, in chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 6 and then look at this a bit more closely. Uh, Verse 1. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So let's notice first that the true witness to the gospel is a transformed life. The true witness to the gospel is a transformed life. And so Peter draws our attention here right at the beginning to the strength of the witness of a wife, of a Christian wife, to an unbelieving husband is, as he says at the end of verse 1, the behavior of their wives. In verse 2, it is a pure and a holy life lived with a reverence and a respectful behavior. There that reverent or fearful behavior is not to the husband but it is before God so it is a life lived before God in humility and in obedience that is the true power of the gospel now we covered just briefly this point of verse 2 1 and 2 last week let me make a few observations here right at the beginning particularly with verse 2 or verse 1 he says here that they may be won by the behavior of their wives without a word without a word. As sometimes you have heard the statement that comes from an, an older writer, but it says this, uh, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that, anybody? Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Uh, I would suggest to you that is a nice thought, but is a nonsensical statement. The gospel is not merely an attitude and it's not merely a, a fruit of your life. The gospel is words. It is a message. It is a message about God. It is a message about man. It is a message about Christ. It is a message that we proclaim. Uh, A life without the message could be a banner for anything. It could be a banner for a spiritualist. It could be a banner for Buddhist. It could be whatever. The life of a Christian comes with a message. And that message is the gospel about who God is, who man is, and who Christ is. In fact, there's oftentimes the unbelieving live more kind lives and more gracious lives even than believers sometimes. And it would only confuse it if we think that somehow by being nicer and being kinder is itself the gospel. That's not what he's talking about here. And he's made that clear throughout the epistle. 
Let me just give you a few examples here. In verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and these things which have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel. They preached it in words. They preached a message. He says in verse 22, You have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love for the brethren. Verse 23, You have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Like newborn babes in verse 2, You're to long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you might grow in respect to salvation. And on and on it goes throughout the epistle and throughout scripture. So he's not saying here that somehow we replace the truth of the gospel with merely a transformed life. That's not the point. It could be safely assumed, as mentioned before, that the gospel the wives heard and believed and obeyed is the same gospel that the husbands heard, disbelieved, and disobeyed. Secondly, by observation... This is not an argument about wives being silent in the home and never saying anything and not speaking the truth whenever possible. It's not walking around merely with silence and nodding the head and and unquestioned obedience. That's not the idea here either. The wife should speak the gospel as is appropriate. She should exercise wisdom. She should tell the truth of Christ as it is appropriate. She should be a source of wisdom. She should be a voice for Christ within the home. What he's addressing here is this, namely that that is to be done with wisdom. It's an exhortation not to be nagging or contentious, which would undermine the witness. That's what he's addressing. Uh, You think of Proverbs uh, 19.13. It says, A foolish son is a destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. And the constant dripping on a day of a steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. And that's the kind of attitude that he's arguing against. He's saying, don't be nagging, don't be contentious, don't, don't make it so overbearing and always having to talk about Jesus that you end up doing the opposite of proclaiming the gospel but actually discrediting it by your witness to your husband. So the idea is this, rather than trying to force the message on the unbelieving husband, The wife should be prayerful, she should be wise, waiting for God to open the doors to speak. And in part, he will do that through the gracious behavior and character displayed in her life. Third observation is this. It's a reminder to wives in this circumstance that the strongest testimony or witness to the power of the gospel is not, again, winning an argument. It's not by being more intellectually convincing. It is not by nagging. It is by displaying the beauty and the power of a transformed life. It's by showing that obedience to Christ trumps everything else. That is going to be the true power of the witness of a godly wife or a wife who is married to an unbelieving. Why is that? Well, because nagging is going to be, and this constant trying to refute wrong thinking is, again, going to simply harden the unbelieving husband, put up defenses, cause him to, be, to not see the beauty, but rather the annoyance of this transformed life and of the gospel. But a gentle and a quiet spirit, as Calvin said, softens and pacifies their minds so that they might have less dislike to religion. For as bad examples create offenses, so good ones afford no small help. And that's the, the intention here. We all know the damage that a bad testimony does to the gospel, doesn't it? Any of you in the workplace, we all know the damage that a bad testimony does when we witness because while we might have a good testimony and a witness, they may have seen 10 others that discredited the gospel through a bad life, through a life that wasn't consistent with what was proclaimed. And we all know that the help a godly life brings to the credibility of our witness to Christ. And so he's calling here to bring credibility to that witness. And that's the idea. Credibility to the gospel that has been believed. Credibility to the truth and the glory of Christ. Not discounted. So that it cannot be easily discounted. And the humble obedience of a Christian, especially in adverse situations, is a powerful witness to the gospel. And that's really the whole theme then of 1 Peter. The obedience of a Christian, your obedience in pleasant circumstances, while important, is not really the greatest power of the gospel. Your obedience and your kindness when everything is going well and my obedience in those situations is not really the power of the gospel. It's, it's necessary, it's a part of just our life of faith, 
but it doesn't bring any great affirmation of the gospel of Christ. It is obedience to Christ under difficult circumstances. It's obedience to Christ in unrighteous suffering. That brings a powerful witness to the world, to yourself, and to those who are watching. To yourself, because it proves your faith. That's what he said at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 7, so that the proof, he says, well, in verse 6, you've been distressed for a little while, if necessary, by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It proves that though you have not seen him, you love him. And so when you wife or wife can bear up under the adverse situation of having an unbelieving husband, as we noted last week, very likely the inference being a husband who was mocking, who was antagonistic towards the gospel. And here she's called to live in a submissive attitude in that kind of situation. And that, that brings power to the gospel. That is the witness of a transformed life. And that's what he's calling us to here. And the life is being observed. He said in chapter 12 of verse 2, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, which certainly would have been going on in this home. Some of you live under this. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And even there, as we noted in that verse... The intention of the good deeds as they observe them and glorify God on the day of visitation is that these might be people who are won by the witness and so bring glory to the gospel when God returns and give him glory. And so it is here that same truth applied to wives. That it is the power of your witness. It is the ability to trust God in the midst of these difficult circumstances that brings or bears witness to the beauty and the worthiness of Christ. It shows that Christ is worthy to be trusted. Christ is worthy to be obeyed. Christ is worthy to be treasured even more than our own comfort or our own self-will. It gives beauty to the gospel. It demonstrates living testimony. And there's also here an important reminder of the connection of our witness to the salvation of those who are in our household. He says, so that they may be one without a word. And of course, one here is speaking of their salvation, their conversion. They may be one to the gospel. They may be one to Christ. They may be one by the attractiveness of what he produces in the life of his children. Establishes here, though, the purpose of obedience. And this is important. This is not a promise that every wife who lives this way and obeys the word of God in this situation will have a believing husband just given enough time. It's not a formula. It's not a guarantee. But it does establish the purpose of that obedience. The goal, the hope of that obedience. In fact, it may not end that way. In fact, it may end in divorce. In fact, it may end up with one having to leave. It may end up in an unhappy situation. But the hope is, the end is, the purpose of this is that they may be one, that the gospel may be affirmed to them and they be one, that we would make the gospel attractive. And this actually isn't just for the wife to the husband. I want to just at least mention this first. We're not going to spend time on it, but... This is a very similar situation to what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 7. You're familiar with it. He gives instructions here. There was some question about what should should a believing spouse do when they find themselves married to an unbeliever. Should the believing spouse leave because now they're unequally yoked? Should they stay in the home? And Paul says, if you are a believer and you find yourself married to an unbeliever, then the believing spouse should stay in the home. They should not leave. If the unbelieving one leaves, then you let them leave. God has called us to peace. You are free from that obligation at that point. But as long as they're willing to live in the home, live in the home with them. And he says this, In verse 14 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So we have, even among ourselves, a knowledge of and some living, 
The reality of a believing and an unbelieving spouse in the same home. And so it works both ways. Paul is addressing the wife's behavior in 1 Peter 3, but there are husbands just as much in the struggle of faith who are living with unbelieving wives who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ and who do not follow him. And Paul's instructions here in 1 Corinthians 7 is saying, looking at it from another angle, you don't know what the power of your witness will bring. When you have a believing spouse in the home, you bring God's favor to that spouse that then spills over into the rest of the home. You have a gospel witness in that home that God may use to bring your unbelieving spouse to salvation. And not only that, to your children. What kind of witness will they have if you were to remove them from the witness of the gospel? By remaining in the home, you, re, you, keep, you set that home aside as the home of a believing spouse and you bring God's blessing and you keep the power of the gospel there that he might use for salvation of a believing husband to an unbelieving wife, of a believing wife to an unbelieving husband, and to the children. And so Paul is, or Peter is here calling us and you Wives, but all of us to remember that the power of the gospel is in our lives. We cannot think that we can behave badly and carelessly in the gospel before a watching world and then somehow think by the mere power of our argument that Christ is going to be exalted and honored. It doesn't work that way. It is the gospel matched with our lives, matched with our lives. So that's the first point. Let's notice secondly here this, that the true power of the gospel then is a new heart shaped by the Spirit. A new heart shaped by the Spirit. And the first thing he says to draw our attention to this is to show us that the true nature of beauty then is internal and not external. It's verses 3 through 4. Your adornment must not be merely external, in verse 4, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart. Now, one of the most natural desires of a woman, particularly, is to be attractive, right? Uh, it's to be attractive. And hopefully, for most, it is, at least. That is a normal part of being a woman, is wanting to be beautiful, wanting to be pleasing, hopefully, to her spouse alone, those who are married. It is to adorn the self externally so that she might draw her husband to her and appreciation and in desire. So the beauty with external appearance here is, is calling on what is most natural to a woman, what is most natural to being feminine. It is to equate attractiveness with physical adornment. And that takes on the flavor in various cultures and at various times, of course. If you have children, as we have daughters, you know the struggle of living in a pornographic culture where you can't go to the mall or find clothes that are not designed to promote a kind of beauty in our culture that is intended to create sensuality and lust. You can hardly find modest clothing. It's very difficult, very difficult. And so we live in a culture that equates this sort of external adornment and external beauty with sensuality, with provocative dress and behavior. They had some of that too as, as well. But that's not really what the heart longs for and it's not what the heart admires. That is not a culture that produces relationships of deep commitment and joy and certainly not for Christians of God's glory. But there's always been a strong emphasis on appearance and physical attractiveness throughout humanity's history. And again, the idea of beauty has been stressed in a variety of ways at a variety of times in a variety of cultures. It doesn't look exactly the same in every culture. But I would say we have a particularly intense, even oppressive sense of this at our times simply because of the internet and social media. Uh, bombarded with images of what it means to be beautiful. Bombarded with images of what physical attractiveness should look like. But again, it's not really what's beautiful. It appeals to unregenerate lust in a highly sexualized culture. It has that kind of appeal. But it certainly doesn't have the appeal to what the heart truly longs for. Listen to the wisdom of Solomon. As a ring of gold and a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. 
If you get married for physical attractiveness, I can guarantee, but not character, I can guarantee you the joy of that marriage is going to be very short-lived. Once the newness of sexual excitement passes away, it's going to become as mundane as every other part of life, and it's not going to be able to sustain deep commitment through better and worse. It has to be something more than that. He says of the godly woman in Proverbs 31, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And so it is. Now we should note here that Peter is not addressing a dignified fashion. He's addressing excess. The kind of excessive concern with external appearance to the neglect of the internal heart and the internal character. That's what he's addressing The kind of focus on the externals motivated by pride, self-exaltation, and misplaced trust. That's that's the idea here. That enslavement to fashion, one said by men or women, that runs counter to growth and spiritual holiness. So here's here's the situation. Uh, And particularly this is here to women, but this has application to men as well. And it's this. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You cannot love or serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. You cannot, women, and particularly in this case, pursue acceptance by the world's standards of external adornment and beauty and have excessive concern with meeting that standard of the culture while at the same time pursuing holiness. They're conflicting desires. They're conflicting goals. We cannot treasure Christ and spiritual growth and the admiration and acceptance of others at the same time. They're competing affections. And if you are a believer, if you are a believing woman, a believing wife, the Spirit of God is going to resist that in your heart because the Spirit sets His desires against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. Not only is it futile and vain to make that your the essence of your beauty, it also will only bring misery and unhappiness. Now, interestingly, this emphasis on the priority of inequality wasn't merely a Christian teaching. It wasn't merely something that the church proclaimed. Many of the writers of ancient time recognized that. One writer of this time, Plutarch, I think I mentioned him last week, uh, says this, it is not gold or precious stones or scarlet that makes her such, that is uh, beautiful, But whatever invests her with that something which betokens dignity, good behavior, and modesty. Even the pagans understood that at the end of the day, it wasn't that merely external kind of beauty that was going to win the heart of others. And again, it doesn't appeal to that deeper desire of our heart. It's merely vain and superficial. A spiritual parallel would be this. And this is just a note. It would be as when when God said, uh, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The nation that he came into had a certain external adornment of religion, but it lacked the reality of the heart. And it was ultimately empty, and it was not beautiful. It was, in fact, enslaving. And so it is with that which is merely an external beauty in the wife, that does not win anything to the gospel. And it doesn't ultimately even win the heart of the husband to listen. But it is, as he says in verse 4, the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart. And this isn't surprising because Christianity is first a matter of the heart, a transformed heart. If you are a Christian, you have experienced a work of grace inwardly that the Bible describes as regeneration, as new life. And it means that the things that you value and the things that you love and the hopes that you have have all been transformed and they're no longer grounded in this world, but they are grounded in the promises of God in Christ himself. It means you've been made to see sin in a new light and now to hate it, to see truth in a new light and to now love it and excuse error. It means that you have a desire to resist hypocrisy. And so Christianity isn't merely behavior modification or religious duty or whatever. It's a life lived out of the realities of union with Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit who's fostering in us a heart to love Him. So the submission that the Lord's calling for here is not just doing, nor is it something that can be achieved through the strength of the will, but this is something, wives, that can only be lived out in the fear of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And the strength and the motivation to obey will be directly related to the knowledge you have of Christ and a love for his truth and a desire to obey him. This can only be lived out by the one who is renewing their mind, who is shepherding and watching over the heart with all diligence, who is confessing sin, who is submitting the life daily to follow Christ. Now let me make just one more note here that this doesn't mean that the wife shouldn't try to be physically attractive and pleasing to her husband. One noted this, it's certainly possible for a woman's appearance to be so unkept and so unadorned as to embarrass and discourage her husband, to whom such indifference in the name of Christ would make the gospel offensive and be just as spiritually detrimental as too much attention given to externals. That doesn't mean you should always wear flannel pajamas and rollers in your hair is the other idea. That's not godliness either. There should be a kind of attractiveness that is pursued, wives, for your husband. You should want to please your husband by being attractive to them, by being appealing to them, even. He's not talking about that. He's saying when that gives way and that takes precedence over the character development into the likeness of Christ. It does mean that even when you pursue the external beauty to the pleasure of your husband, even that is subsumed under the larger goal of submitting to him and living a life that would honor him. That it's more others-focused and not self-focused. It's it's the true kind of beauty he's calling us to that comes only through the cultivation of the heart. It's not here the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, the putting on of dresses, but the cultivation of a character that reflects the fear of God and the love of Christ that's maturing and that's growing. And as I mentioned, this is something then that's shaped by the Spirit. What does this look like? What does it look like then? He says, let it be in verse 4, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. If you want... To offend our culture, uh, just read this passage. Just read this passage. If you want to go against the natural inclinations of our flesh, understand what he's saying here. It's the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Precisely the opposite of what our flesh and our culture may say, which says, stand up for yourself. Don't let anyone treat you wrongly. Don't put up with any mistreatment at all. Now again, as I said, it's not true that Peter is not saying that a wife is never to speak or should stay under physically abusive circumstances. We noted noted that last week. Or have a demeanor of groveling or a, a servile kind of docility. That's not what he's talking about here. He is saying this, that the greater reality of spiritual strength, dignity, courage, and godliness is not by being outspoken and assertive, self assertive, but it is to be Noted by a gentle and a quiet spirit that displays a deep and a settled trust in God in obedience to Christ as Lord and Lord of our circumstances. And look what he says here. He says that is an imperishable quality. That's an imperishable quality. Unlike the fading beauty of the world, which is like the grass that has glory, the flower that has a temporary glory, But then the grass withers and the flower falls off, he said in chapter 1. It's not that passing kind of beauty. It's not the passing kind of beauty where millions and billions of dollars are spent on plastic surgery. Or the sad situations where you see somebody in their 70s who has a permanent smile on their face. Because they're holding on to something that is destined to pass away. It's destined to pass away. And and that has a certain humor in one sense. In the other sense, it's sad. It's deeply sad. You're holding on to something that was never meant to last, that was never meant to stay. You're holding on to a shadow. You're holding on to something that is vain. It's like the wind. And Jesus, or uh, Peter here, Scripture calls us to something deeper than that, something better than that, something more profound than that. This is the kind of beauty, he says, that is imperishable. In other ways, it won't fade with the passing of time. It will actually become more precious and more beautiful with the passing of time. In a godly marriage to a godly woman, her beauty 
is going to shine more brightly and have more of a hold on the heart of the husband after 40 years of marriage and 50 years of marriage and in some cases more than that. Her beauty is not going to diminish in his eyes. It's actually going to increase to those who are pursuing this kind of true beauty. Now, I'll just mention this briefly. What does this look like then? A gentle and a quiet spirit. A gentle and a quiet spirit. The gentleness that he's calling for here is, is often what we refer to as meekness. Is meekness. In the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that was used of Moses when it says he was the most humble of all of the earth. He was the most meek of all of the people on the earth. In the Psalms, it's the attitude of the righteous. In the New Testament, this term is used to mark those who are in the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. It was the character of Christ himself who said, Come to me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. He referred to himself as meek, as lowly, as one who was gentle and humble in heart. It was the quality that enabled him to be reviled and not reviled in return, to suffer and utter no threats, to entrust himself to him who judges righteously. It's the idea then of power under control. It's not of weakness. And that's the error, as we've mentioned, that the kind of submission that God calls us to is portrayed in the world to wives as weakness. It's weakness. It's lowliness. It's inferiority. That's exactly the opposite of what God says. He says, no, it is the greatest demonstration of strength. It's the kind of strength that enabled Christ himself to submit himself to the disabuse or to the abuse and the unrighteousness of the world to atone for sin. And I don't think we would ever want to say that he was weak who created the ends of the earth, who reconciled the world to the Father. So when you model this kind of gentleness, it's not the voice of the culture of inferiority or weakness. It is, in fact, the gentleness and the meekness that comes from a deeply profound internal strength and trust in the gospel that shares in the life of Jesus Christ himself. It's a powerful witness. It's a powerful witness. It represents, as a matter of fact, in older Greek literature, this was helpful, I thought. It was described this way, this word. So this is in secular uh, Greek, but nonetheless. It says of this word, it represents character traits of the noble-minded, the sage who remains meek in the face of insults, the judge who is lenient in judgment, and the king who is kind in his rule. It has a nobility to it. It has a dignity to it. It's a character of those who are truly honored rulers and the honored among people. And so here it's the wife whose trust and commitment to God enables an inner strength to live under these conditions without defensiveness, with a non-retaliatory spirit that can remain in an adverse situation with the resolve to fulfill her role as an obedient wife in the fear of Christ. That's the gentleness that he refers to here. And again, it's not a matter of individual strength or will, but it's a, it comes from a commitment to Christ. It's a yielding moment by moment to the Spirit. And he says it's a gentle spirit and it's a quiet spirit, a quiet spirit. He uses this term, this, this form anyway, an adjective. One other time in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, he says, Pray for kings and all that are in authority so that we may, be, we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. A quiet life. The idea is one of undisturbed, without conflict, being at rest. Here it is a quietness of spirit and it has the sense of an inward peace, a lack of anxiety and disorder internally that causes confusion and angst. Again, this is a deeply profound faith and a trust in God and commitment to Christ. Deeply profound. It's a spirit that, one says, calmly bears the disturbances created by others and does not itself create disturbances. Again, is not self-willed. So this is a maturity of faith. This is a mature Christian he's talking about. This is somebody who's pursuing that likeness uh, to Christ. And knows the empowering presence of the Spirit. And again, this goes exactly opposite to every other voice that we hear 
in culture. One was making a note about paganism, even of that time. So this isn't so new. If you could insert the word, as we've been covering, feminism for paganism, though there's a connection. Uh, Here's a quote that's helpful. Paganism despised the person who was not masterful, who did not assert his own will and make others bow to it. Christianity elevated lowliness and did not regard it as a form of weakness, but as a mark of inner spiritual strength. So there's a contrast here to the boisterous, self-willed, contentious, antagonistic wife who might win the admiration of herself in her own eyes or in the eyes of the world. But this is the kind of character that he says, the end of verse 4, is precious in the sight of God. Precious in the sight of God. Precious speaks of being of great value, of great worth. And to the believer, this is the greatest concern. To the believer and to the believing wife, this is the greatest concern. God's honor and approval, not the approval and the honor and the respect of the world. James 4.4 says this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It really comes down to whose approval and whose voice are you going to listen to. God says this is precious in his sight. Precious in his sight. And if the spirit is in you, believing wife, believer, then he's going to prompt you to desire above all else the approval of the father who called you, the son who redeemed you and left you an example, the sanctifying spirit who places within you a great value on holiness. This is the inner quality that's not, only, that's not only present and enticing and drawing the beauty to the unbelieving husband, but it's a consistent with true beauty. What God sees is precious. And again, I, I want to make just a brief application here to single women. And men, for that matter. It applies to both. But, what you, but women particularly with the sense of clothing and external beauty. What you attract with is what you attract to. Right? You've heard that in terms of the gospel. But it is with yourself as well. What you attract with is what you attract to. There's never ever an excuse for the kind of mistreatment that happens to women in our cultures. Never an excuse for that. It's always sin for a man to mistreat a woman. But you have to ask yourself as well, what would we expect, particularly in a fallen world, when the dress is so often designed to entice and to draw an attractiveness or a sense of desire out of a male that is centered only on sexuality or primarily on sexuality and not on character. You don't have to turn on the TV anymore to see the most popular figures in our culture who wear dresses down to the navel so you can see everything. This isn't a secret. That's what our culture promotes. Type in selfies on Google and see what comes up. It's not pictures of modesty. It's pictures of sexuality and sensuality. And so this is exactly the opposite of what is being called for here. And in fact, the voice of our culture that screams so loud to so many is that this is in fact a true expression of independence. This is a true, in fact, a true expression of what is valuable. What you have as a female is this power over men, which is exactly the opposite of what is being, again, called for here. And so to the single woman, the, the exhortation is this. A godly man will find beauty in your modesty and character. If that's what you want to attract, then that needs to be reflected in the way that you conduct yourself and what you pursue. If you want to attract with allurement and sexuality, then that's the kind of character of the one you're going to attract as well. So this leads to the next point. The godly woman, the godly wife, lives then in the presence of God and in fellowship with Him. It's this. The hope of the gospel is the source of this persevering strength. Look at what he says here. Uh, In verse 5, For in the same way, former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. 
just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. The hope of the gospel is a source of persevering strength. These holy women of former times, they hoped in God. And again, that's the central theme to all of 1 Peter is hope in God. Chapter 1, the fathers caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 21, Christ has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Hope is at the heart of the believer's life that enables them to live this kind of obedience. It's the kind of hope in verse 15 that causes others to say they want an account for how you can live this way. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Set him apart as Lord in your heart as the only one that you obey and that you serve. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Same idea to the wives. He's saying these women lived with the hope in God. The hope is then that your husband will be one without a word. Why? Because they see something different. If you live in a culture and they observe your life, then they should ask you for this hope that is within you. What makes you live differently than everyone else? And we say it's because I have a hope. I have a hope in something greater than what this world offers. So it's the hope that is in you. It's the hope in God. God who made a promise, God who rules over your creation, over over his creation, God who rules over your circumstances, God who called you into fellowship with himself, God who sustains, guides, and helps you, God who has all power and all wisdom and all knowledge, God who is full of grace and mercy and compassion and gentleness and is faithful, that's the one in whom you hope. And that produces a very different person and a very different kind of character than what would be expected. In that culture, in our culture, in any kind of culture. It's the kind of hope that looks forward to something that is good, that is beneficial. All that God has promised. All that God has provided. And again, this hope is the fruit of the Spirit. Of the Spirit. It's the Christian virtue and it's behind our obedience. And so this brings up just a little, uh, another important point to mention again. This obedience and submission of the wife to a husband is ultimately not obedience to the husband and submission to the husband. It is obedience and submission to Christ. And that has to be understood. If that's not understood, everything else will be missed. How many times that you can counsel someone about these commands of Christ only to be met with this kind of resistance... You don't know my husband. They treated me this way. They said this. They don't deserve it. And the answer to that is compassion, first of all, because it is difficult to be sure. But at the end of that compassion is a command. And that command is this is how you are to live. It's not about your husband. It's not about his worthiness. It is about the worthiness of Christ. And so whether you're willing to obey doesn't show whether you treasure your husband as much as it shows or proves whether you treasure Christ. And you treasure him above all else. That's the whole point. And the power of that, again, is even to a husband who's disobedient to the word, sees a wife who lives that way and is impacted and finds that witness powerful. God, we have to remember as well, is the one who has brought us into these circumstances and has provided the context in which we are to glorify him. Lastly here, the true examples he's given to follow then are those who are faithful to God. The true examples to follow are those who are faithful to God. And the Spirit provides here the specific example of a wife, namely Sarah, who provides a pattern. And I just want to make two quick notes. I'm only going to mention it. Here. Examples are crucial. We follow what our hearts desire and what our hearts are shaped by. And in part, our desires are shaped by the examples that influence us. Again, if we're going to get that through media, culture, friends, social media, the voice of the world in whatever form it comes, or we're going to follow the examples laid out for us in Scripture. 
Again, it's a matter of renewing the mind. It's the kind of character that can only come from one who knows Christ. And, and here he's, he's given an example, and we must follow the right examples. And to too many, the examples of Scripture seem very strange. They seem wrong. But he says here it's what's precious in the sight of God. And I'd make just another note here. This is a footnote. This subtly speaks of the sufficiency of Scripture. God didn't just provide the instruction. He didn't just provide the promise. He's provided examples. And that's the nature of his word. He said, here's what you are to do. Here's why you are to do it. And now here's an example of how you live that out and what it looks like. It's the sufficiency of Scripture. And he uses the examples of imperfect people, even here with Sarah, but people who demonstrated trust in God alongside their human weakness and their failure, but ultimately persevering. And so here he defines them as this way, holy women also. And here he's uh, referencing all of the women of antiquity, all of the women of the covenant who demonstrated faithfulness, who demonstrated godliness. The specific example of Sarah is chosen most likely because she's the wife of Abraham, the patriarch, the progenitor, if you will, of the covenant. She's sometimes called the mother of the faithful. And she serves here then as a model. Notes here that she called him Lord. What's the example? First thing he gives, she called him Lord. I've tried to bring that up to Trish, but she's struggling through obedience in that area. You could pray for her, actually. No, of course, that's not what he's talking about is that it's some kind of title of Lord. That was common to that culture. It just spoke of one in position of honor, position of authority. It's saying then that she recognized that. She wasn't putting him in the place of God. It's not some enduring instruction for a wife's obedient address to her husband. It is an example of godly submission to his role as her husband. He's referring here to, we won't for the sake of time, go there. But Genesis 18, 12. If you'll remember, the, the angel of the Lord came and announced this birth of Isaac. And she didn't believe it at first. And she had said to herself silently, Shall my Lord have pleasure even in his old age? Shall he still have pleasure? She said this. In Genesis eighteen twelve. you can look it up. What's notable here is that she said that as a casual comment. And one is noted that we see from this that even in casual situations, Sarah respected Abraham's leadership, revealing thereby that her honor of him was part of the warp and the woof of her life. Another noted that she spoke this to herself, displaying her inner attitude and thoughts. And these are important observations. It speaks again of her inward character that was manifest in every part of life. It was the secret thought of her heart. So in the quiet moments and subtle nuances of interaction that she had in the home and in her own heart, what was displayed was a reverence and an honor to her husband. It wasn't merely a public display. It was testimony to the private reality of her thoughts and her attitude and her heart again not towards Abraham or not towards her husband himself but it's because she is one who hoped in God she hoped in God it was God focused and she was not without fault she was not perfect in every way she was not without failing in her life you only need to think of she's the one who suggested that Abraham take Hagar to raise up a son which was out of disbelief and in disobedient to the covenant of marriage It was her unbelief that laughed when she laughed at the promise that caused God to have to rebuke her. She wasn't perfect. She failed. But the overall banner and tenor of her life was one who trusted in God and was submitted to her husband. And what did that look like then? It means that when he called her, Abraham, to leave home, she followed. It means when God gave a promise of what he was going to do through Abraham... Though faltering, ultimately she believed and she submitted to him as her head in the marriage. So God's people aren't perfect, but the direction of her life is one to be emulated and one to be followed. She followed him and she did so without fear. Let me just note that. Uh, And you have become her children. That is, you follow in the same line of faith. You show herself to be her spiritual children of one who truly knows God. If you do what is right without being frightened by any fear or not frightened by terror, what does that mean? It could even be said intimidation. And the idea is simply this. 
that you can exercise this kind of submission, this obedient faith without fearing the consequences. What's going to happen? What will happen if I do that? What kind of terrible thing will come about that seems so unnatural, it seems so uncertain about what it will produce? But he says, they do so without being frightened by any fear. This is a resolute, deep, profound, again, courageous, dignified, noble faith in Christ who has redeemed them so that they can put their hands totally in the care of the one who is sovereign over their life and trust him. And do good in the midst of this. Do good in the adverse situation. Do good because the trust and their hope is in God. And there's a reflection here of perseverance of the saints. That's what marks one as being of the, a covenant child. That's what marks one as having of the same faith is by living this life of trust, not frightened by terror. It's living our life with the hope of all that God has promised. And that is, in fact, what we remember in the table this morning. We proclaim his death until he comes. We proclaim that our hope is in him. And as we drink the red which reminds us of his bloodshed, his violent death on our behalf as we eat the bread, which reminds us of his body given for us. It should encourage hope. And for you who live under these circumstances, or you who live in any kind of adverse situation that calls for trust in God and obedient faith that you don't know the outcome of, That's why God calls us to gather together. That's why God has given us the supper. And that's why God has given us his word. So let me pray. And as you prepare your heart and the men come forward to hand out the elements. uh, And then we'll take the table together. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for the example that you've given us in Christ. Who, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And by so doing, O Christ, you became our mediator. You became the grounds of our salvation, our justification. You became the very essence of our sanctification as we're conformed to your image by your life in us. And you are our hope and our joy as we fellowship with you and fellowship with you, Father, by the Spirit whom you have given Help those who are in these situations to have that persevering strength. Help them to see beyond the discouragements of the present into the glories of the future. And help them to be faithful. And help them to hold on. And we do pray that for those who do have these situations, that the power of that witness would lead to salvation of the unbelieving. To this end we pray. Amen.